0: Over the school holidays, we're going to be doing a new series. As you know, if you've been with us for a little while, we've been going through the book of James, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But just over the holidays, we're just going to jump into another series for three weeks, just focusing in on John chapter 3 through a series called Simply Believe. And we're just going to be working our way through that chapter. And this morning, I just want to begin by reading verses 1 through 15, which is where we're going to be hanging out today. John chapter 3. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to enter the magical yet mysterious chocolate factory of Mr. Willy Wonka, you have to acquire for yourself a golden ticket. If you want to enter the land of Narnia, well, you've got a couple of options. You can find one of five magic rings, or you can make your way through a painting, or perhaps try the wardrobe that isn't always open. And then, of course, as a personal favourite, if you want to get to Neverland, well, you're going to have to find some pixie dust. Um, Think of a happy thought and fly your way there yourself. Second star on the right, straight on till morning. These are some of the conditions of entry to some of our most cherished childhood destinations. But what about the kingdom of God? What, what are the conditions of entry for the kingdom of God? You see, this is the overarching question that permeates the entire discourse that we've just read. And in fact, it really permeates the entire chapter of John chapter 3. And the truth is, what could be more important a question? There are so many things we can ask ourselves when we consider our own futures, like, oh, How are we going to pay off our mortgage if the economy crashes? I mean, should we invest in the share market so we can retire early? I mean, should we change our super provider? There's so many things you can think about when it comes to your own future. On and on and on we go with questions, but ultimately those things are concerned with temporal realities. Their significance are going to reach their boundary at the end of your life. Whereas things concerning conditions of entry into the kingdom of God, and whether or not we meet those conditions, that's of eternal significance. 19th century Anglican minister said it this way. He said, the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus, which begins with these verses, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Nowhere else do we find stronger statements about those two mighty subjects, the new birth and salvation by faith in the Son of God. The servant of Christ will do well to make himself thoroughly acquainted with this chapter. A man may be ignorant of many things in religion and yet be saved. But to be ignorant of the matters handled in this chapter is to be in the broad way which leadeth to destruction. J.C. Ryle. And so, for the next three weeks, what we're going to do, we're going to go through this chapter in some detail and we're going to seek to answer that age old question. That question that bothers every soul, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And our passage today begins with a man named Nicodemus, and we're told that he is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. Now, uh, Pharisees were one of four factions in Judaism, so you had the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and the Pharisees, right? And to be a Pharisee, you had to be a meticulous student of the Old Testament. You did a lot of reading of your Old Testament, and they were considered the religious elite of their day. 95% of the Jewish population didn't really belong to any one of these factions, but if you ask them, hey mate, do you have a soft spot for any one of the parties in Judaism? You can bet your bottom dollar they said the Pharisees every time. You see, the Pharisees had a particularly legalistic religion. Okay, just to give you an idea of just how legalistic these guys were, just how meticulous they were in their own practice, let me read for you uh, this brief extract from John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. He says the Pharisees were hyperlegalists who externalized religion. They were the very epitome—pardon me, epitome—of all who pursue a form of godliness with no reality. Although they were fanatically religious, they were no nearer the kingdom of God than a prostitute. Their credo included fastidious adherence to more than 600 laws, many of which were simply their own inventions. They believed, for example, that it was all right to swallow vinegar on the Sabbath, but not to gargle it. Gargling constituted labor. One Pharisa- Pharisaical teaching held that it was permissible to eat an, pardon me, to eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath only if the chicken was killed the next day for having violated the Sabbath. This is how meticulous these guys were when it came to observing their own man-made commandments. It's pretty intense, right? But this was the day in the life of a Pharisee. But despite this man's supposed religious prestige and the fact that he is a distinguished teacher in Israel, he sees something in the ministry of Jesus that intrigues him. He's observed the life and ministry of Jesus and he can't seem to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. He doesn't know... What box to put Jesus in? He's a bit of a curious character. And the thing that intrigued him the most was the signs that Jesus was performing. Now, it's hard to know exactly which signs Nicodemus had seen. We're not entirely sure. But as I'm sure you know, Jesus had a reputation for doing things like turning water into wine, healing lepers, restoring sight to the blind, and even casting out demons. Nicodemus could see this is no ordinary Galilean carpenter. This guy is a little bit different, right? And the question is, what's Nicodemus going to do with this curious character named Jesus? Well, his, his own environment actually made that really tricky for him, okay? So in order to understand how Nicodemus responds to Jesus, we need to get an idea of how are other people responding in that day and age. And we're told in uh, John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. You're thinking, this is awesome. There's revival in Jerusalem. Like People are seeing miraculous signs and they're believing in Jesus. Well, keep reading. (laughs) But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What's John getting at there? He's saying that for many people... Jesus knew that yeah, all they wanted was the miracles. They weren't interested in the man or the message. And so he did not entrust himself to them. But then if you think that's bad, you, you should have seen what the Pharisees were doing. Many of the, the Pharisees, the, the colleague of people that um, Nicodemus belonged to, most of them were looking at Jesus and saying the only reason he can cast out a demon is because he himself is possessed by one. So this is the air that Nicodemus is breathing. How's he going to respond when he's got his colleagues saying one thing? He's got the crowds responding in other ways. How's he going to approach him? Well, with his building curiosity, he decides to approach Jesus. And what it's worth noting there in verse 2 is that he approaches Jesus at night. Now, why do you think that might be? Probably to, being, to avoid being seen by his fellow Pharisees, right? Wouldn't have gone down too well at the local synagogue if they knew that he'd approached Jesus in this manner, right? So it's both, it's both curiosity and cowardice that's informing uh, this approach. And these are the words that he begins with. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, how should we understand what he's getting at there? Well, First and foremost, he calls him rabbi, which is pretty significant. There's actually a little bit of humility in his posture as he approaches Jesus. For, for a Pharisee to call an untrained carpenter rabbi, fellow teacher, that's a big deal. Okay, the modern equivalent would be like an orthopedic surgeon going up to a chippy and calling him a doctor. It's like, yeah, you know, we all use drills, don't we? Like, that's, that's the modern equivalent, right? A Pharisee did not call a carpenter teacher. So that's actually a big deal. But at the same time, as much as he acknowledges him as rabbi, he kind of picks up his Pharisaic clipboard and he comes to audit Jesus. And his words really come in the form of an implied question. In effect, he's asking, who are you? We can see, me and some of my colleagues, we, we can see that you come in the power of God, but are you any more than that? with his little Pharisaic clipboard. And what you notice is that Jesus doesn't actually answer the question at all. Instead, Jesus goes after the false premise behind the question. In effect, what Jesus says to him is, you claim to have sight, but the truth is, Nicodemus, you can't see at all. In fact, you are totally blind. You say that you can see that I come in the power of God? But truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. This Pharisee came to audit Jesus. Now, Jesus is auditing him. And Nicodemus just doesn't have the categories to understand what what Jesus is saying. You see, Nicodemus had a very distinct understanding of what the kingdom of God meant and what it meant to be a part of that kingdom. You see, he was waiting, like many Jews in his day, for a day when God would send a messiah, a a Davidic king who would come at the end of the age, at the end of history, and he would bring swift judgment on God's enemies and he would usher Israel into a time of flourishing, into a a time of resurrection existence in the kingdom of God. He's waiting for that day. So for Nicodemus, the kingdom of God was a future reality. And then for the most part, it's actually an exclusively Jewish reality. He thinks all Jews are just going to flash their passport and they're going to get welcomed into the kingdom of God. And he thinks because he's a Pharisee, he thinks he's going to be flying first class. He thinks he's got the golden ticket by sheer virtue of his pedigree and his piety. That's what he thinks when it comes to the kingdom of God. But then Jesus arrives on the scene and he has a very, very different view of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus begins his ministry. You can read about it in Mark chapter 1. The words are like this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That is to say, it is here, right now. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, the Jews who heard that when Jesus spoke, they would have been scratching their head. Mate, are you kidding yourself? The Romans are still in charge. There's no Davidic king. Um, No resurrections like... Surely the kingdom is not here. You're kidding yourself, mate, right? But for Jesus, he said, no, the the kingdom of God has arrived because I have arrived. I am the Davidic king. The kingdom of God is here because I am here. And in order to actually see that, to, to see Jesus and his kingdom, you have to have a heart change. And Nicodemus hadn't had it. So Jesus, in effect, says to Nicodemus, no, sir, you can't see a thing at all. You must be born again. And Nicodemus, he still doesn't get it. He's quite perplexed by Jesus. He's kind of been backed into a corner here. He's playing off the back foot. And the words that come out are kind of interesting, right? He, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, you can take that one of two ways. Like, possibly he was just so on the back foot that he just came out thinking Jesus must be speaking literally. And what he says is literal and maybe just a dad dash crass. Um, He's taking Jesus quite literally here. But then the other way you could take his words, which I think is my preferred interpretation, is to say that Nicodemus knew Jesus was speaking symbolically, but he was really, really put off by it. He's like, what do you mean I have to start my life again? I'm actually a fair way through my life now, and I'm actually not too keen uh, to start again. I'm quite proud of the life I have. I am a Pharisee after all. How dare you say, I must be born again, start my life again. Are you kidding? As Matthew Henry put it. They that are proud of their first birth are hardly brought to a new birth. But full of grace and truth, Jesus keeps pressing this man. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, as you can imagine, there is a plethora of interpretations for that particular verse, right? Perhaps the most tempting is to interpret these words sacramentally. That is, you read, um, born of water, as if it means Christian baptism. And many people have interpreted the verse that way. Or perhaps if you're like me and you grew up Pentecostal, you see two different baptisms here. You see water baptism, phase one of conversion. Spirit baptism, phase two of conversion. Some people have interpreted it that way, but... The only thing I would say against those two interpretations, though you're welcome to hold them, pardon me, my notes have just hidden on me, is that those interpretations would have meant nothing to the historical person of Nicodemus. What you would be doing is you're imposing later church practice onto a text in a way that Nicodemus would have been foreign to. So I would argue that what Jesus is actually doing is he's just drawing upon very familiar, rich Old Testament imagery that Nicodemus would be very familiar with because he's read the Old Testament so much. And that's why I think Jesus can rebuke him later in verse 10 by saying, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus should have understood them from the Old Testament. And so the kind of imagery I think Jesus is drawing upon in this verse is the kind of thing you read about in Ezekiel 36. We looked at this verse a couple of weeks ago when we did Taming the Tongue. This is what it says. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Born of water. There it is. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Born of the Spirit. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So as you read the flow of conversation through verses 1 through 8 of John 3, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Hey mate, your, your birth certificate and your passport are insignificant. Your pedigree and your piety mean nothing. Until you, Nicodemus, you personally have an Ezekiel 36 type experience in your heart, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And now this is a message not only for a first century Pharisee, but this is a timeless announcement for the church through every generation in history. A woman famously once came up to the famous evangelist George Whitfield and said to him, Sir, why do you always preach you must be born again? He leant over and said, ma'am, because you must. (laughs) You must be born again. You see, it's very tempting for us to adopt the same kind of posture that Nicodemus uh, has here in his own self-assessment of being right before God. We can do the same thing in our own self-assessment of being Christian. Very often we deceive ourselves into thinking we're saved because we, I don't know, went to a Christian school, grew up in a Christian home, I was baptised at a youth camp one time. I've been to church my whole life. I ticked the right box in the last Australian census. I've memorised the Westminster Catechism. Oh, and I've never been drunk before. I must be saved. You see, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're saved and we actually subscribe to false assurance And historically speaking, this has come up a number of different ways. In fact, this is actually one of the dangers that you can read about in history of Christendom. For example, uh, if you were alive in a couple of different places in Europe, say in the 15th century, no one would have really patted you on the shoulder and said, oh, pardon me, sir, are you a Christian? (laughs) For the most part, your Christianity was assumed. It was a a societal phenomenon, right? It was your, your town and your nation were probably Christian. There was no separation of church and state. It was a a shared thought that if a certain town or nation had a common, unanimous religion, then it would prevent civil war. So you wanted everyone on the same team uh, in terms of their religion. And so often, no matter what was going on in the hearts of the parents, all the babies in town were baptised and it was considered that everyone was a Christian. But here's the problem with that. Um, When everyone's a Christian... No one is. What you end up with is nominal Christianity. It's Christianity that exists in name only, which is a concept that is just so far removed from the New Testament, it's not funny. And this has popped up so many times in church history. For example, I was just reading this week about the the history of the United States when uh, they just made their way over to the New World and they're up there in New England in the 1660s. They feel that God has sanctioned their quest to the new world, to Christian nation, where all the laws are informed by Christian values and virtues. And it was actually, for a time, very easy to be part of a church without actually being born again, without even professing faith. It got to a point where um, they developed something that was later called the halfway covenant, where people were wanting to be part of church membership, but they said, yeah, look, I haven't experienced grace in my heart, but... I wouldn't mind my kids getting baptised and I wouldn't mind the social and political benefits of being attached to a church. And so often what they did is they let people have this kind of partial membership where they were part of the church, but quite openly they said, yeah, the grace of God has not hit my heart. And so it took the miraculous revival of the Great Awakening through the preaching of guys like Jonathan Edwards to remind people of the radical new birth that is true biblical Christianity. It happens throughout history and it can happen to us today. You see, we need to be reminded that Christianity is not something you inherit. It's not something that's nationalistic. It's personal. It's experiential. And Jesus goes on to say it's actually very, very mysterious and even supernatural. Look at what he says there in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, this this great mystery of being born again, of having your heart made alive by God himself, is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, Just to try and define that for you, this is from Wayne Grudem. He said, Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. That's what regeneration is. That's what being born again is. And the truth is, the reason God has to impart new spiritual life into us is because before we actually come to know Christ, we're spiritually dead. It's very popular for people to say today, oh, yeah, I'm not Christian, but I'm actually very spiritual. <laughs> no, you're actually dead, according to the Bible. You see, the, the imagery the Bible uses, it, it's a pretty bleak diagnosis. It likens our spirituality before Christ to a corpse. Let, let, let me tell you, if it's not plainly obvious, corpses do not impart life to themselves. If a corpse has life imparted to it, it is a total and utter miracle. The Apostle Paul spoke about it in Ephesians 2. He said, "...and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience." by Jesus. It is incredible. It's the most incredible thing you could ever witness. For me, this was particularly apparent and potent when I saw it in the life of one of my younger brothers. He'd recently graduated high school. Let's just say he had a very thorough schoolies experience. He could drink alcohol like it was apple juice. And uh, in the week Leading up to his 18th birthday, let me tell you, he was getting ready to turn 18. He had a big night planned, right? But then one of his best mates dragged him along to a youth service, like an Easter service on a Friday night. Um, The the way he got him along was quite funny. He said, Oh, there's going to be some pretty girls there. That got my brother along. Well, he thought he was going to get the girls. What he got was the gospel. And he was radically changed total transformation. The Spirit of God made his heart alive. Literally, the, the very next day was his 18th birthday party, and I wanted to get out a microscope and examine him. Like, who, who are you? What have you done with my brother? He's gone. The, the man I had in front of me was not the same. He The man who had been planning this big night was just sipping away at one or two with a Just a glow on his face that I will never forget. I tried to find the picture on Facebook today, but he's deleted his account so many times, couldn't find it. But I kid you not, his face just, he wasn't the same guy. He'd been made alive, right? And within a couple of weeks, he was down at the local skate parks cooking up barbecues for kids who didn't know Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. That's what happens when God makes someone's heart alive. Oh, it's awesome. That is the nature of the new birth. I once was blind. (gasps) Now I see. That's conversion. Yes, I just bumped the mic. (laughs) It's like a corpse coming to life. That's what regeneration is. It's a miracle that God does. And what's incredible about it is that the recipient is completely passive in the process. Look how it's beautifully portrayed in Acts chapter 16. Said One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. Listen to this. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. How was it that she was able to pay attention? Well, God had to open her heart first. This is a miracle that God does. Salvation is ultimately of the Lord. This is This is the mercy of God in bold print and colour. Look how J.C. Ryle described it. He said, This mighty change, it must never be forgotten. We cannot give it to ourselves. The very name which our Lord gives to it is a convincing proof of this. He calls it a birth. No man is the author of his own existence and no man can quicken his own soul. We might as well expect a dead man to give himself life as expect a natural man to make himself spiritual. Now at this point you might be asking, Jaden, how, how will I know if my heart has been made alive? I, I think it's happened. I'm pretty sure it has, but um, sometimes it's easier when you compare one testimony to another. As Charles Spurgeon put it, sometimes the, the winds of the Spirit is a total hurricane, my brother, total hurricane. Other people, gentle breeze. So sometimes it's it's hard to tell. For me, I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly when my heart was made alive. I'm, I grew up in the church. It, my heart may have been made alive primary school, possibly, but I couldn't guarantee you. It might not have been until late high school. I, I can't tell, but I know it's happened. He's made my heart alive to the gospel. And so if you're unsure, and, and often it's the people who've grown up in church the most who couldn't quite pick exactly when their heart was made alive, How how do we know when our heart's been made alive by the gospel? Well, there's a couple of tests. Let me just give you two. Um, Number one, do you hate sin? 1 John 3, verses 9 through 10. It says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let me ask you this morning, like, does, does sin leave a bad taste in your mouth or are you just perfectly content to chew on it? But, now, what we're not saying, we're not saying that Christians are perfect. Okay? As Luther put it, we are simultaneously saint and sinner until Jesus gets back, Christians will be waging war on sin. Yes, we've been given this new heart of Ezekiel 36, but we're still going to make war against the flesh. But let me ask you this morning, is, is there a fight going on inside of you? Do, do you sense that there's a bit of a warfare between your flesh and this new Ezekiel 36 heart you've been given? Have, are you aware of that tension inside yourself? Like, because if you don't feel that, if you can sin completely undisturbed and over the course of your life there's actually no pardon me, uh, objective measurable change, that there's a good chance your heart hasn't been made alive. Now, let me pause there for a moment. That, let's remind ourselves the life of the Christian becoming more like Christ is absolutely the game of the tortoise and not the hare. Okay? It's usually slow. It's often two steps forward, one step back, and sometimes because we're sheep that go astray, we get stuck in the mud and it looks like we're not even moving at all. Occasionally we even go a little bit backwards. But even in those stuck-in-the-mud type seasons, when, even seasons when you feel like your suffering might be kind of suffocating your assurance a little bit, for those who are born again, there is still a fight going on even in those moments when you fail, even if you're failing repeatedly, there's still a war going on where you still feel the Spirit of God is trying to move you forward. Sin won't taste the same when your heart's been made alive. That's the sign of a regenerate heart. You'll feel a fight inside you. Second thing, do you love God and your fellow Christian? 1 John 4, 7 through 8. It said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let me ask you, do your your affections get stirred when you hear about God? Is the gospel a delight to your heart, or is it something you stumble over? Do you treasure the Lord Jesus? Do you long to hear him speak through his word? Can you say with the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good? And then furthermore, does that love for God manifest itself in the way you treat your fellow Christian? I love Jesus, I just hate his bride. Just not a thing, according to 1 John 4. The heart that's been transformed by Jesus cannot help but fall in love with him and his people. Is that evident for you? You see, a regenerated life will always follow the regenerated heart. You can measure it. You can see it. And so Nicodemus, having heard all of this, he's, he's got his tail between his legs now. And Jesus says to him, hey, you're a, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And if I, if I can paraphrase verse 12 for you, he says to Nicodemus, hey, if, if you can't understand the beginning of the Christian life, when the Spirit makes your heart alive, how are you going to understand the goal of the Christian life? That's what he means by earthly things and heavenly things. If you can't understand the component of Christianity that takes place on the earth, how are you going to understand the component of Christianity that's going to take place in heaven? If you can't recognize the arrival of the king and his kingdom, what makes you think you're qualified to talk about the consummation of the kingdom? Jesus tells him, hey, I know you've been teaching on the kingdom of God your whole life, but I've read your thesis and it needs a total rewrite. <laughs> you are not qualified to teach on such things. Only I'm qualified because I'm the only one who's come from heaven. I'm the only one who can speak of such heavenly things. But the conversation doesn't end there. Oh, it's true. Jesus has had to do the hard work of deconstructing Nicodemus's self-righteousness, but Jesus doesn't leave him there. He points him forward. He doesn't leave him with some vague instruction, oh, just go have a new heart experience somewhere. (laughs) No, no, he points him to the very means that God employs to bring that about. And he says it there in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, what Jesus does now is he alludes to a story that Nicodemus would be very, very familiar with. It's a story from Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. We won't read it now, but I'll summarize it for you. The people of Israel were traveling in the wilderness and they made a very, one of their many, harsh complaint against God. They accused him and said, You have brought us out here to the wilderness to die. Even though he'd miraculously rescued them, that's what they accused him of. And so God, he, having known that his children were quite prone to a tantrum in the wilderness, he, rightly so, he punishes them by sending poisonous snakes into the camp, such that many people in the camp of Israel died because of the poison of these snakes. And some of the people who were still alive were going, Moses, please pray to the Lord that we might be rid of these snakes. What, what, what can we do for forgiveness? Where does our salvation lie? And the Lord said to Moses, go and make a bronze serpent. Now, bronze probably better translates copper. Copper is red. Red is symbolic for atonement uh, in the Old Testament. He said, I want you to fashion for yourself this bronze copper serpent and I want you to set it up on a pole and tell the people that all they must do to live is look at the bronze serpent. They don't deserve to be rescued, but if they just look to the bronze serpent, I will save them. That's all they have to do. They don't... He didn't say, oh, just go and um, try and tame the snakes, turn them into pets, That, that might reduce the amount of bites you get, or try and suck the venom out of your wounds yourself. No, go and look at the bronze serpent. And he didn't say, oh, when you get there, try and do good works to try and impress the bronze serpent or throw money at it to try and earn your salvation. No, just look at the bronze serpent and you will live. And Jesus says in the same way, that that serpent was lifted up for all the Israelites to see, so I must be lifted up. Now that phrase appears four times in John's Gospel. And every single time it refers not only to the exaltation of the Son, but literally to the method of execution known as Roman crucifixion. You see, once the victim was viciously flogged, they were required to carry the horizontal pole on their back that was shredded to pieces all the way outside the city where there was a vertical pole already in the ground. And they would literally have to lift them up. Son of man must be lifted up onto the cross. Just as the bronze serpent was lifted up, so must I be. Jesus says to Nicodemus, the only way you can enter the kingdom of God is if I go and die on your behalf on a wretched cross. You cannot merit your own salvation through your self-righteous legalism and whether or not you're gargling the vinegar. If anything, trying to live like that only condemns you more. Your only hope is to look to the cross. Simply believe in me and my finished work on the cross and you will have eternal life in the kingdom of God. Maybe the band can come and join me. And so if it's not already explicitly clear from everything we've looked at today, let me ask you this morning, have you been born again? Do you believe that the finished work of Jesus is the only way that you can inherit eternal life? And for those who would receive it, you can know that that eternal life, in some sense, actually starts right now. In John 5, Jesus said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life in the present you can begin to enjoy the eternal life and blessings of knowing the king right now and for Nicodemus eventually that's what happened his heart was made alive and he was actually one of the ones who helped Jesus off the cross and give him a proper burial before he rose again three days later Nicodemus did receive the kingdom but not in the way he would prepared for his entire life what will it be for you Let me close with this from John 6 this morning. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent.